Welcome to Getting Legal With It, a podcast for Colorado young lawyers by Colorado young lawyers. I'm your host, Kevin Chaney. For those listening to us for the first time, I'm a personal injury and criminal defense lawyer here in Colorado. I graduated from the University of Colorado Law School in 2014 and founded my practice, Chaney Galuzzi and Howard, a short time later. I'm a member of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, where I serve on its board, executive committee, and legislative committee. I also serve on the Colorado Bar Association's Board of Governors, the CBA Executive Committee, and the CBA Young Lawyers Division Executive Council. Finally, I'm a member of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar Association. If you're interested in getting and learning more about any of these wonderful organizations, please feel free to shoot me an email at kevin at cghlawfirm.com. This podcast is created and sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Our goal with this podcast is to bring bi-weekly episodes with information that is both fun and informative for young lawyers. We have some awesome guests lined up and we are just getting started. If you like our podcast, please, please, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. And with that, let's jump right in. Well, listeners, I'm really excited uh, for our guest uh, today. We have the uh, first dean of a law school on the podcast. Uh, Bruce Smith is the 20th dean of the University of Denver Sturm College of Law, having served in that role since July of 2016. Previously, he was a professor of law and Guy Raymond Jones faculty scholar at the University of Illinois College of Law, where he was dean from 2009 to 2014. Dean Smith has been a visiting faculty member at the University of Michigan Law School, the George Washington University Law School, and the University of Luxembourg. From 1996 to 2001, he practiced in the litigation group at Covington and Burling LLP in Washington, D.C., where he focused on intellectual property litigation and sports law, representing the NFL, NHL, and NBA, among other clients. Well, Dean Smith, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's It's a real pleasure to have you here, sir. And thank you for having me. It's great to join the Young Lawyers Division. Uh, well, we, we appreciate you being here. Uh, how we kind of start these things off usually is just kind of learning a little bit about our guests. So why don't you tell our, our listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, where are you from? I grew up in um, in a part of New York State that's called the North Country. And the, and the fact that we call it our own country may give you a sense of how far north <laughs> in New York State that is, or maybe how far off the grid it is. Um, the town is called Messina, New York. It's a town of maybe 12,000 right on the Canadian border. And when, you're, when your hometown airport is Montreal, Quebec, you know you're pretty far north. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. And I had never heard that. You know, you learn something new every day. That's why I love doing these things. So I will just tell you, Kevin, uh, it's a big day in my town when we're colder than International Falls. Uh, That's uh, pretty cold. Uh, Our record low is minus 44. (laughs) And that's when they start to think about closing school. Ooh, ooh. I'm from Wyoming, which wind chill can get real, real cold. But that is that is a different level of cold right there. Um, (laughs) So. Uh, did you did you grow up then in in the New York area, or did you you know move around a lot as a child, or how did that go? So I, I was actually born in Montreal because my parents were studying there. They um, universities are pretty thin on the ground in my part of uh, the North Country, so some <laughs> some people actually cross the border to get their education. Right. Um, so yeah, so I grew up in Messina, and I grew up playing ice hockey there, uh, mostly on outdoor rinks. Um, sometimes. Um, 
in weather that was too cold to play, but uh, we like to believe that we grow them um, tough and uh, <laughs> relatively resilient there. And, and then I went on to college in the, in the Northeast and um, gradually migrated out to, um, to where I am today. I first visited Colorado when I was eight years old. Uh, my dad was a very fond of Colorado, had studied in Denver for a year, and I think at some level always hoped one of his kids would come here. Well, uh, and look at you now. Mission accomplished. Um, so I know you said that you went to school back uh, in the Northeast. Uh, where did you do your undergrad? So I, I went to I went to college at a, a small liberal arts college called Williams College, which is in the, the Berkshire Mountains of Massachusetts. It's a, a Division three hockey school, a small liberal arts college, a pretty... Um, nestled in the in in ski country um, and enjoyed that and studied history there uh, and then went on to a, a couple of years of graduate work in England and then off to my many years as a law student and a graduate student in history. I, I did a, a joint degree program as a law student, meaning I did my law degree alongside a PhD in history. Oh wow, wow. Uh, and did you know when you were an undergrad that law school was in the cards or, or- I guess the better question is, when did you decide that you wanted to become a lawyer? So it actually came very late in my process. Um, my town was um, of a size where I really didn't know any lawyers and really mm-hmm. hadn't seen much of what they do. I was very focused on history as an undergrad and and studied it for a couple of years. Um, maybe happily for me, I, I guess, um, maybe not happily at the time, I was interested in a field of history that was really... Uh, quite narrow and not very healthy. In other words, something that interested me, but would not have interested people in the academic (laughs) job market. Um, Put slightly differently, I was an 18th century British historian. And if you want to do fields of history with few jobs, you do British history. And if you want to do fields of British history with few jobs, you do 18th century British history. So I, um, I, became, inter- I became interested in law really on, on two fronts. Um, when I was in England, a lot of the study of history was being done through legal sources. And this is really not the study of law. It's the study of how people lived and how their lives were structured by the law, how, how criminals experienced the law or persons accused of crime, how people experienced other social uh, dynamics in their lives. Um, so I became very familiar with legal sources and really became interested in the intersection between the law as it is written and the law as it is experienced by people, which of course matters a lot to lawyers. Right. But if I were to be honest, and I really have that trait uh, given my part of the world, which is plain spoken and maybe how I was raised. I mean, I really was interested in law as a backup plan for my PhD in history, which could have readily led me to, you know, an academic career that would have been really, really tough and maybe not any academic career at all. So um, I entered into a joint degree program partly as a way of pursuing studies at the intersection of law and history, but partly, honestly, as a way of backing up this kind of passion, which might have turned into an academic life that would not have been fulfilled. But I became really interested in law in law school and really, really interested in practice. This sort of backup plan, and I I really, maybe it's curious for a dean of a law school to confess that, but that backup plan became the principal plan in time. Um, Loved law practice, didn't mind leaving it, um, but I really at times still miss it and was very happy I chose the path. I could pursue a passion, but also pursue something a bit more pragmatic. 
You know, it's interesting. We've had, I don't know, maybe 20 different uh, individuals on the podcast at, you know, all different levels of their career. And it's always fascinating to me to hear, um, you know, when you're in law school or even when you're in undergrad, like it sometimes feels like everyone around you has this straight line path laid out for them. And, you know, they're going, you know, A, B, C, they know exactly where they want to go. They know where they want to live, what kind of career they want to have. And they're just on the path. And it can be, I think, overwhelming sometimes for students who aren't there. Um, but when I've, you know, spoken with, you know, federal judges, Colorado Supreme Court justices, you know, deans of law school and, and other, you know, people that have kind of risen to the pinnacle of their profession, almost all of them did not have the straight line career. They had a backup plan, a plan B, a plan C. I mean, some people are on like plan G at this point. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's always interesting. And I think that for our listeners, you know, they're law students and, and young lawyers, it's, it's okay to not have it all figured out. It's okay to have a few different options or a backup plan or an option that you don't even know exists yet. Um, and, you know, you can still make it, you can still have a really successful career. And um, so I think that that's important for, you know, them to, to sometimes hear because it can be kind of overwhelming, I think at, at times. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really important point. And I, the way I try to make it to my students, because I still teach as a Dean, you know, not all deans choose to, but I, I love to teach and I think it allows me to, to understand the student experience better. But sometimes they perceive me as a dean, maybe as someone who wanted to be a dean throughout the one's legal career. But listen, every dean became a dean, uh, virtually every one, because they first wanted to be a teacher. I mean, if you scratch the surface of every dean, it's because they are at heart a teacher. And that means they're focused on students. That means they're focused on the classroom. They're focused on professional development. And once you break it down for students like that and say, and I think teacher, you know, not professor, not faculty member, not scholar, teacher, teacher, I left practice to teach. This is my home, the classroom. Let's get this done. It is, it demystifies the dean position because every dean fundamentally didn't go to law school to become a dean. Right. They right. went to law school to be something that mattered to them. And they ended up in this position. I don't know if it's plan G, but it's certainly well into um, the alphabet at this stage. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, while we're talking about students, uh, I'd like to you know, kind of shift gears and, and ask you a little bit about uh, COVID and, and how that's impacted uh, the law school. Um, for our listeners, we're shooting uh, this via Zoom. Earlier this year, we were able to shoot a few in person during kind of a lull uh, in the pandemic. Unfortunately, uh, the numbers... Uh, have risen again uh, in Colorado, although the last week or two they've, they've been on the decline. Uh, so let me ask you this, how has COVID impacted uh, the Sturm College of Law? And I guess to follow up on that specifically, how has it impacted law students uh, at, your, at your school? So I, I guess with so many aspects of society, whether it's uh, governmental agencies or, or law firms or professional sports leagues, you know, higher education and, and law schools um, certainly as well, they've had to look at every single piece of what they do um, in ways we've never done before. And it's really led itself to a, a fundamental assessment of what is necessary for us to do with respect to teaching, uh, what cannot be sacrificed, what is a candidate for reconsideration. You know, we're running a type of public health or community safety enterprise that is always part of the way universities operate. We care about the welfare and safety of our students. We care about their 
um, physical safety, uh, whether uh, measured by the way we think about traffic or the way we think about um, campus security. But this has taken it to levels that, uh, you know, really press the um, very best minds in public health. And it's really pressed and pushed me uh, right to my limits of legal expertise, compliance expertise. I've really tried to think of it if I were delivering the best counsel that I can summon from the best core of advisors that I can put together for students um, whose care and welfare really matters to me. Like when I go to sleep at night, that's what's on my mind. When I wake up, that's what's on my mind. How would I build it? And I'm not saying we've done it perfectly, but I think we've done some good things. If you approach the project as the hardest legal job I will have ever done. And you know, I've done some that were not easy in the past and then get the best advice you can and listen and adapt and course correct. That's what it's been like. And of course it's touched our academic program, you know, how we teach. It's touched matters of building access and security, like the way we would think about running a safe medical clinic or a safe professional sports league. Right. It's certainly touched difficult matters. Um, you know, it's this has pressed the sort of financial stability, the mental health, the uh, welfare, broadly speaking, not just physical health, but uh, the broader mental and physical health of our student body and our staff and our faculty in ways that are really challenging and in ways where deans do not have perfect answers. So it's been challenging. I think we try to approach it with a very clear understanding of our principles, a very clear articulation of our compliance plan and what was going to matter to us, and then execute on it in a manner that, you know, recognized course correction if we needed to, but sought to have no such corrections needed. I mean, it, it's been it's been an important and difficult task. I will say, Kevin, we we sort of had a bit of a test drive. We, we, we administered the Colorado bar examination, and not without concern, of course, and not without right. some... Uh, even uh, maybe engagement with younger lawyers who might have wished for a diploma privilege. So the, this, this was in itself not an easy task, but it allowed us to work in a very thoughtful way on matters of building capacity, uh, building uh, distancing, mask wearing. I mean, we had a bit of a, I would say, a, I wouldn't say dry run, but I would say we had a bit of a stress test, if you will, by going through that process in July. And then we incorporated lessons learned and moved to the next level. What so. are you guys, I guess, specifically doing? So I know, and, and looking at, I was doing some research on, on kind of law schools across the country, and there's really been all different models. You have some that have been completely online only. Uh, there have been some that, you know, like schools at, at all levels that have kind of gone to a hybrid. Um, some schools have tried to maintain in-person, but with all social distancing and, you know, smaller class sizes. Um, what is DU Law currently doing? Are you guys are you guys uh, doing in person, or is it a hybrid? Is there some virtual teaching, uh, or tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So first, you're right. Schools have uh, gone to a number of different approaches. Some of this relates to the regulatory climate in which they find themselves, either their city or their state. Some may relate, by the way, to the size of their law school classes and the physical space they have. The American Bar Association has provided law schools with a fair amount of latitude to structure themselves as they see fit, provided certain core commitments to students are maintained. Mm -hmm. Maybe partly because of our experience with the Colorado Bar Administration, I think partly because we have a state-of-the-art, spacious building partly because our faculty is strongly committed to student teaching. So we could count on faculty members uh, with proper conversation I mean, as a matter of faculty decision-making 
to commit themselves to student learning. We went to a model that was not fully online because I felt that was a course that was not necessarily best for our students. And it probably would have been the easiest course, but I didn't think it was the best one for our students. We went to a world where first year students, so students experiencing, as you remember, that you know, iconic, incredible first year learning experience where we sectioned them into smaller sections. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you think about it differently, put more first year faculty members into the classroom. And those students typically came to class for their doctrinal class once a week. They then did their skills class, in this case, legal writing on a second day a week, but then accessed Zoom, uh, the class through Zoom on the other days of the week. So put slightly differently, I taught a 54 student class. I had 18 of them in class on Monday, but 36 online. I had a different 18 in class on Wednesday, but 36 online. And I guess we could say in a different group on Friday, we could say, you know, what is the what is gained from that? Because clearly it's more complex to run an enterprise where students are in the building. For me as a teacher, what's gained is a type of connection to the students, a type of in-class experience, actually a type of first year experience that almost feels like a seminar class where I felt we would convey that students come first at our law school recognizing that if we had to pivot away from that, um, we'd pivot. And in our 14-week term, we got through 13 weeks before conditions in Denver and maybe campus guidance made it really necessary to to wind down the last three classes fully online. Mm -hmm. And I will say, just in perfect candor, in our upper division, so for second and third year students, we used online instruction much more systematically, partly on the thinking that those students had been through the first year. They had had right. that incredible uh, experience. And, and, you know, I it's hard to quantify whether we got it right or wrong, but I can say I've never had as many first-year students come to me and say, thank you. Um, thank you for taking on this task. Again, it's hard to attribute cause uh, because law school applications are up this year, but they're up very significantly at the University of Denver. And I, and I like to think, I, I don't know, but I like to think that Clarity about our principles, putting students first as best we could understand it, and executing on the plan uh, feature prominently. I'm not saying we got everything right. It's still very hard, but I think we made this decision right for us as an institution. Maybe not for every law school, but for us. Yeah, I think that what you said really makes a lot of sense. I, you know, I can't imagine going through law school without the experience of that that one L year and kind of you know meeting the people that you meet. Uh, being in the in the classroom, you know, getting cold called that first time by a professor, and you know, asking to you know tell tell them about the case, what's the holding, what's going on, uh, you know, it really is so important to uh, you know the legal experience, and so um, you know, good for you guys that that you guys have found a model uh, that has worked, and um, you know, there's been a lot of different models, a lot of really smart people trying to do the best they can, and um, I'm glad that you guys have found one that that works for you. Um, one, I guess, other question I had about COVID, uh, I think our second episode we ever had, this was pre-pandemic, barely, the pandemic was about to hit, we didn't know it yet, and I had a, a assistant dean, Todd Rogers, from CU Law uh, on, and uh, I was talking to him about kind of the future of the legal profession and, um, you know, what kind of areas of law he kind of saw, saw growing, and it's really fascinating, I think, to kind of predict um, the future, which I think is something that law schools, you know, are always trying to do to prepare their students for, um, you know, the new the new world. So with that in mind, my question for you is, do you think that COVID has fundamentally changed 
the practice of law? And if so, do you believe that some of those changes will be permanent, even after the kind of the pandemic has ended? So it's it's probably the case that members of the Young Lawyers Division and other divisions in the, the CBA and the DBA and other specialty bars, you know, probably have a better handle on this than I would from my current vantage point, you know, with respect to the you know, the economic or organizational or, or client aspects. You know, my sense, though, from my perspective is that firms and frankly, all employers are going to take a much harder look at the balance between in-building and remote work. Like there are aspects of our enterprise at this law school that we have discovered can be done quite successfully through remote work. And if it can be done through remote work, that might well increase the talent pool we can draw from. It might increase colleagues who are balancing other responsibilities or cannot afford the Denver market or are in other parts of the world. You know, when the New Yorker magazine puts together their magazine, their editors can live in Paris or London. Uh, They don't have to live in New York. I mean, they can do great editing from uh, Wyoming or from Paris. I I think law schools and maybe even, I can't speak for other legal employers, but I think we're discovering as law schools that we want to bring great talent to bear um, on our enterprise. And maybe that doesn't necessarily mean being in our building as much as we thought. We we always had a very strong um, and liberal approach to flex time, to allowing people to, to chart their professional path as employees of the University of Denver's law school as they saw fit. But I think some greater flexibility, you know, we'll likely see. I, I think secondly, and, and probably even more systematically, You know, this really, this pandemic has really heightened our awareness about the way that economic disruption, public health matters are are deeply impacting uh, marginalized communities in ways that, that really invite careful thought by law schools. I mean, when we think about the next clinic we build at our law school, and we have, um, and we may have a chance to talk about this, but you know, we have a proud tradition of clinics and public service and experiential learning. But that next clinic, I think we won't necessarily look at it the same way. We may look at one that looks at the intersection of public health and law. We may look at one that looks very closely at communities that have really suffered um, during this pandemic. And those communities are ones that haven't always been on the radar screen for law schools. They could be small businesses. They could be communities uh, that are operated by individuals uh, who are uh, struggling to get access to capital. They could be communities that are experiencing the health dimensions differently. So I think, you know, I can't speak as much to how law firms and other legal employers will, will organize their work, but I can say that law schools will never be the same after by the way, not not only after this pandemic, but I think after this year, which has seen a, a public health pandemic, I think heightened awareness about uh, social justice and a presidential transition that has made us think carefully about um, the rule of law and the role that lawyers should have. So it's been a going back to my roots uh, in English history. They, they sometimes back in the 17th century, when they had incredible years, they imagined them to be uh, sort of acts of God. Like, this is such an incredible year. How could this happen again? And um, the year in which the London fire occurred, 1666, was one of those years. This year is almost like one of those miracle years. It's made us think about everything differently. And uh, I think it's too early to chart what that change will look like. But I'll never think about a law school or legal, legal practice again after what I've gone through this year. Yeah, I don't think anyone will ever forget 2020. 
you know, 2020 will go down as, as, as definitely better, worse, good, bad. The, the, it was it was a year of uh, big change in, 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 in all of the different areas that you've spoken about. Uh, since you brought it up, I'm just going to jump right to it. I would love to talk a little bit about experiential learning. And, um, you know, I, I obviously uh, applied to you know many different law schools and, and did a lot of research. And, you know, the law school at the University of Denver has always kind of had this reputation as for prioritizing uh, experiential or, or hands-on learning. Um, you know, what are the benefits of, you know, such a focus and really getting students their ability to, you know, really practice law under the guidance of a professor through a clinic or really getting their hands wet in, you know, in, in learning how to become a lawyer? So I guess, you know, if we were to just take the the simple answer, but I'm not going to stop with the simple answer. I mean, we typically imagine this to be a type of, of skill development exercise. And, and then there are schools that will claim that their graduates are practice ready. And I'm not saying we've been immune from making those claims in the past, but but I don't view skill development alone as the fundamental reason for this, because I think no matter how much skill development is imparted, whether you're at Georgetown or Michigan or, or Denver or Colorado, there's still an awful lot to learn as a lawyer. I mean, every new fact pattern, every new witness, every new client, there's a constant learning process. And you know this, Kevin, from your practice. Um, it would be wrong for us to think that we can create client-ready, practice-ready lawyers on the first day, no matter what kind of experiential program we run. And I will say, and I don't mean it as a plug, I mean, we're, we're top 10 in clinics and advocacy and legal writing. We do it as seriously as anyone in the country. But even with that, I know enough from my years in practice to know I had an awful lot to learn uh, thereafter. I do think it has a couple of other additional benefits, though. I think one relates to professional formation, to, to helping law students think carefully about what they want to do with their lives. I, I must say I did not take a clinic in law school, and I think it was to my detriment, maybe partly for skill development, but really for professional development as well. I think I lost an aspect of uh, what I really wanted to do by not having that opportunity to certainly represent clients, which we do in the clinics, but frankly, even do as much advocacy and legal writing or externship work as I might have done. It does, of course, get us credibility with employers, but maybe not as much credibility as either we or the employers uh, might imagine, because we still think there's work to do. But I think it um, it helps a lot on professional formation. And then, and then in the clinics, it helps us remind our students that we, um, as lawyers, have a broader calling. I mean, it's a profession for a reason. We have a responsibility to move the dial in whatever area matters most to us. But public service, however we define it, and it can be the type of work that's happening on this um, podcast, which is trying to impart knowledge and start a conversation on ways to better our legal system and our legal education system, or it can be in any other domain. I think those are really additionally important. So yeah, we, we do this seriously at Denver, but we, I think, also have to recognize uh, it's always a work in progress. Right. You know, I'm a, I'm a big believer. And when I look back at my, you know, law school experience and I think about, um, you know, the two things that really, sh well, three things that really shaped my, um, you know, ability to, to practice law and got me where I am today. I think about the, the criminal defense clinic where I was able to try my first case. Uh, so uh, Professor Ann England, if you're listening, thank you so much for that. Big help. The mock trial and moot court programs that I was able to participate in. 
Um, and then legal writing, the class, which is sort of experiential always because you're, you know, you're actually doing legal writing. Um, and, you know, I look back on those things. I, I would like to get your take on something. So I've been in, you know, there's so much discussion about experiential learning. And, um, you know, when you, when you speak to different faculty, there's a lot of different views on it. And there's, you know, these debates about little topics about, you know, how many credits should a person be able to get in the clinics? How many should they be able to get during externships or internships uh, versus, you know, traditional doctrinal classes? And uh, I think there are really reasonable people on both sides. And, and, you know, some professors basically say, look, we're not a trade school, that we are a, a school to teach young people and young lawyers how to think. And we should not be giving you know, basically unlimited or, you know, large amounts of credits for externships and mock trial and things like that, because that means the students will not be in the classes uh, learning how to think. And that, you know, then then if we lose that, then, you know, it's going to make everything worse. What are are kind of your views on that debate? I mean, I think that it's clear DU uh, has kind of come down on one on one side of that. Um, you know, and you know, it's really robust experiential programs. But what, what do you say to that argument that, you know, if we allow too much of that, then we're going to lose the doctrinal learning that takes place um, in the classroom? Well, I've, you've done a magnificent job of sort of channeling the maybe classical vision of the doctrinal faculty member. Um, and when I say classical vision, I mean it both uh, maybe as a matter of sort of the history of legal education and maybe what we might imagine that archetype to be. So you could imagine a world, and it's a world that goes back to the 1870s in American legal education, like long before the rise of clinics, where we believe that thinking like a lawyer involved distilling case holdings and learning to manage and argue from those particular holdings. And this is sort of the vision that Langdell imparted at Harvard. You know, I think truthfully, most law schools um, do both doctrinal learning and experiential learning quite well. So in advance of thinking about a talk I gave today to a a group of my alumni, I was thinking about this puzzle of experiential learning and doctrinal learning. And if you actually look at it, among the top 10 clinical programs, you've got powerhouses in doctrinal learning. I mean, you've got Yale, Stanford, Berkeley, Michigan, NYU, Georgetown, None of them have sort of chosen one side of the equation or the other. So when you say like DU has chosen one side, I think that's where I'd maybe push back a little bit because sure. you know we, we have faculty members last term who you know visited at Harvard because of their doctrinal expertise. We've got ones coming into us from most recently from Johns Hopkins in the public health area, uh, really really focused on their doctrinal side. But we also have doctrinal faculty members who are very much focused on uh, changing law, including sometimes through advocacy and litigation. So things are a bit more blurred at this law school. And I guess what I'd say is, and this is a second piece, uh, so I don't think it's either or. The second piece is, you know, when we, we do use this term thinking like a lawyer, and because I've always taught first year students, this has always been part of the question for me, like, what does it mean? Like, what should I be doing as a first year law professor to make students think that way? And I guess what I'd say is I push my students to imagine that thinking like a lawyer isn't just like mastering legal logic. And I'm going to show you two ways that I mean that. My mentor in law school said to me this, you may think that you're here to think like a lawyer, but 90% of legal cases are decided on facts. 
they're not decided on the law. The question is who ran the red light when there was an inter intersection crash, not whether running a red light is against the law. And in many cases you do, you're gonna need to develop facts, manage them, present them, argue from them. There may be the rare case where like your logical um, analysis of some case outpaces that of the judge or some prior panel of judges <laughs> or your opponent. But most of what you do, who invented this first, who engaged in wrongdoing at the intersection, most of it is fact development. And, you know, I must say, when I first heard that, I felt kind of deflated, like I'm going to law school to learn fact development. Like, no, I'm here to learn the great legal cases and to outwit my opponent. And I'm here to do, you know, gladiator combat and my analysis will be better. But actually, having practiced law for a number of years, there's a lot of truth in that proposition. Um, so thinking like a lawyer, to me, means going beyond the law and actually understanding what lawyers do. The second piece is, I don't think it should all be about what lawyers think. I think sometimes it should be what lawyers feel. It should be about what makes them passionate, what makes them angry, what makes them indignant, what makes them have empathy with their clients. So I often encourage my students to turn on all of their emotions, not only their thought, but also their human dimension. Um, you know, you got to follow that passion that makes you feel like you're doing lawyer work. So I guess both on the question of whether we have to choose one or the other and whether the core task is a thinking task or instead a, a different type of task, either a, a feeling task or a fact development task. I've always just tried to say that to my students. I can tell they don't love it because they all think they came to Denver to outwit their opponent. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is sometimes cases are won by outworking, not by outthinking, and sometimes by developing a more powerful narrative. And that's facts. That's not always law. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great point. Um, and there was actually something that you said that I think is a great segue for our next topic. You were talking about you know, some of these different emotions and passion and things like that. And um, certainly social justice and specifically racial justice has been uh, over the last year uh, at the forefront of you know, many people's minds, including lawyers and law students, uh, as we saw you know, the George Floyd videos and the protests and really have uh, you know, turned that issue on to uh, a racial justice. Um, which also is related to diversity and inclusivity uh, initiatives. Um, you know, our, our national circumstances have brought increased attention to matters of diversity and inclusivity. Um, I know that the legal profession and lots of different law schools have been working on it for some time. Um, but the reality is, is we can look at the profession today and, and know that we have uh, significantly more work uh, to do. Um, so I guess my question for you is, how are you thinking about these issues? at the Sturm College of Law? And are there particular initiatives that you guys are undertaking or considering undertaking to increase uh, the diversity and inclusivity on campus? You know, we, we've had some um, successes, I think, over the last years at, at Denver. And I think that we have had some successes in, in further diversifying our class. But if I were to look honestly, I would say of all the projects we have, this is perhaps the most incomplete. Many law schools, we're not alone here, um, I think have done better in creative recruitment, in supporting students coming in, and have imagined the task fundamentally about as one as um, focused on maybe the composition of the incoming class. And we, we celebrate that and we report it. And then too often, and I don't mean to speak for other law schools, I'll speak directly about our circumstances at Denver. I think too often we have been insufficiently uh, energetic, insufficiently creative, 
insufficiently observant about just what that experience looks like. Do students who are first-generation law students feel like they belong? Do students from rural Colorado feel respected when the dean of the law school talks about access to justice and what it can mean to, to take your legal degree to make a change? Do students um, who are students of color feel like they have a place, that they are being listened to in class, that they aren't being made to take a position just because uh, they are um, a student from a historically underrepresented group? That question of belonging and how we train our students is our imperfect work, uh, and it's work we continue to work on at, at DU. Um, I had the virtue of coming from the state of Illinois, and I say that because I was at a great public land-grant university with one of the most diverse undergraduate student bodies in the nation, and I had the privilege of teaching undergraduates. I, I could do whatever I wanted as a dean in terms of teaching, but I wanted <laughs> to teach undergraduates, and I said to the university, give me the largest classroom you have, short of the what was then called the assembly hall, which uh, seated 16,000, but give me the largest cl classroom you have because I want to interact with students who've never met a law dean, who've never met a lawyer, whose only interaction with the law may have been negative. And that was a privilege because I talked to students who had the firepower, the intelligence, the passion, the commitment to go to law school, but never could have imagined what that meant. It's harder at a private university with a higher price point. I don't have a 350-student concert hall where I can conduct an undergraduate class. But I know as a dean, and I've got a great associate dean for DEI, uh, Professor Alexi Freeman, that we, we have additional work to do here. And so belonging and inclusion in addition to recruitment. Um, I would say additionally, we have um, periodically imagined our social justice uh, task, you know, the work done by our clinics, as in some ways separate from the way we launch students into the legal market. Increasingly, we're supporting students who want to do that type of mission-driven work right at graduation. We support now a postgraduate fellowship in the immigration area. We've supported them in the area of children's rights. We will increasingly in the coming years support them for students who want to work on, on racial justice, social justice. And I want to emphasize here rural justice. You know, we are in a state that has entire counties on the Eastern Plains where there are no lawyers and certainly no graduates of the University of Denver taking their first legal job. There are a number of approaches we could and should be taking um, in this state, um, and they won't all involve just um, the dean um, making it happen, him or herself. Uh, some of these may involve shifts in the way we regulate lawyers. There are, there are legal practices that could be purchased, resold, potentially even purchased and resold by non-lawyers. We have an opportunity to rethink the types of rules that have long existed in this country about non-lawyer ownership of firms. And I guess I'd put it this way. Um, my son is a travel baseball player, and I spent a fair amount of time in Lamar, Colorado. And if you walk the streets of Lamar, you're going to see dentists, and you're going to see realtors, and you're going to see insurance agents. You're going to see very few lawyers. And one fact is that dental offices don't have to be owned by dentists. They can be owned by business persons and run by dentists, so too with other businesses. But with law, that non-lawyer ownership remains a sticking point, at least in this state, not in every Mountain West state. And I think that's going to relax as we try to tackle some of these really tough issues of access to justice in this state. I hope it does. You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, earlier on in, in your answer, you talked about, you know, the difference between just looking at class numbers and saying, all right, well, you know, this class is, 
you know, a little bit more diverse than the last class. And so we're, we're really doing well. And, you know, speaking about my own experience and, and, and really this is the privilege of being a, you know, a straight white, able-bodied male, but, you know, I went to, you know, school, law school up in Boulder, one of the most liberal cities in the United States. Um, and, you know, a, a school that tries really hard uh, at diversity. And, you know, if you had asked me, a year ago, is Boulder welcoming to, you know, diverse backgrounds and people of color and people with all these traditional life experiences, I would have been like, yeah, man, I mean, they're super nice up there, you know, everyone loves it. And, you know, over the past year, as I've interacted with people, you know, in person or, you know, talking with them or even on social media, and I look at some of what the diverse individuals from my class have said about their experience, and it, it didn't always feel like that. They didn't always feel like they were welcome. Yeah, there wasn't, you know, some of the outright racism that you experience in maybe a different part of the United States or different part of the world. But, you know, I was always the person called on to basically speak about the Black experience. I was the only Native American in my class. And so anytime, you know, Indian law came up, I was the person that was basically expected to speak for my people. It really has been eye-opening for me to, you know, hear about that experience because it was something that I literally would have never guessed. And, you know, looking back now, like it seems obvious. And so it, I think it's so important, these conversations that we've been having. And, you know, I know the CBA has been really, really working on this issue. It's been its number one issue, you know, pretty much all year um, about, you know, diversity and inclusion and really working on this. But, you know, I think it was interesting. You talked about your experience at the University of Illinois versus where you are now. Um, I've been fortunate to, you know, go to several ABA young lawyer conferences and the diversity at the ABA level is just so much more significant than where we are in Colorado. And part of it is where we are and where we live and just how many people we have here. But, you know, it really shows that there is a better way and that, you know, all of us, the universities, the law, or the, the law schools at the universities, the, the bar associations have this responsibility, I think, to, to keep driving that conversation forward. Um, and I think we're fortunate that we've got some really great ones here that have been have been attempting it. But uh, I agree with you. It, it's it's uncom it's incomplete uh, by any fair sense of the word, um, and you know any any fair evaluation of of where we are. Very briefly, Kevin, I think this is a an area though where collaboration between law schools and the practicing bar could yield incredible returns. And just to give one example, you know, at most U.S. law schools, their adjunct faculties have built up over time, and they're not um, necessarily. Uh, like maybe if you were the general manager of a professional sports team, they're not assessed every year, reshaped, rebalanced. But over time, they may not necessarily come to represent the diversity of the student body they teach. And I'm not, uh, we have an incredible core of adjuncts, so too does the University of Colorado. So this is not a comment on those incredibly talented and dedicated teachers. But we can work to look carefully at the faculty members we have in our classrooms. And sometimes that can be through collaboration with the specialty bars. Sometimes it can be in collaboration with individuals who have specialty practice um, expertise. Um, and it can sometimes be in collaboration with even the Young Lawyers Division. I say even because sometimes we imagine that one has to have accumulated 20 years of experience to be a good mentor or a good teacher. Not in many of the practice areas in which these listeners, your listeners will work. We have people relatively early in their careers who have the skill set to impart knowledge to our students. And we're very eager 
to um, further build upon that adjunct faculty and, and other forms of faculty to really make sure that the people teaching our students are also representative of our aspirations and the clients our lawyers will serve. And that's a great point. And that's something that the YLD has uh, really worked on. You know, we put on a lot of CLEs. Back in the day, we would always try to find, you know, the most experienced, the biggest name, like the, you know, the most respected individual in the field. And there's certainly uh, room for that. But over the last like two or three years, we've really focused on trying to get young lawyers to lead as many CLEs as we can, uh, because age is a diversity. They're the, the, the people that have been practicing law for 30 years don't see the world necessarily the same way, and they don't necessarily approach legal problems the same way. And so if you can learn from somebody with 30, 40 years experience, that's awesome. And they have a lot to teach young lawyers, but other young lawyers also have something to teach young lawyers. And so when we're trying to plot out these CLEs, which is just a very, very small micro version of what you guys are doing at the law school, you know, we want to have that diversity of perspective, because if you have an old lawyer and a young lawyer teaching together, the, the listeners are going to, uh, you know, whoever's viewing that presentation is going to learn more. And honestly, the presenters sometimes learn from each other, which is also a really great experience. We've just got um, a couple minutes left, uh, Dean Smith, and then we could spend all day talking about some of these topics. Um, but I, I want to end on a question that I think is, is always interesting for people who are listening and also for people that have, you know, kind of made it to, uh, you know, such a high point in their career as you clearly have. Um, is there anything you wish you had known in law school uh, that you learned later in your career? You know, if you could go back in time and tell a young Bruce Smith some piece of advice while he was in law school, what, what would it be? I guess it's something that I, I try to share with my first year students, and usually they're a little bit dumbfounded when I, when I put it to them. I advise students, and I wish I knew then, to consider how you wish to practice, not what you wish to practice, and by the way, not even where you wish to practice, but fundamentally, how do you want to structure your professional life? You know, I think about the happiest lawyers I've ever met, and they're not in places most first-year students would imagine. They're not necessarily in the 65th story of a Chicago or New York or L.A. building. You know, I met with some public defenders down in Pueblo, and I remember shutting the door and said, you, you really are happy here. Tell me about it. And they said, you know, we, we do work we believe in, we can afford our houses, and we ski Taos on the weekends. And that's how they, <laughs> well, that's how they wanted to practice law. They wanted to be in a setting where the odds were against them, where, where they were taking on tough cases, where the government had unlimited resources. They wanted to be doing work they believed in. They were happy to own their homes and they liked deep powder. And I, I try to encourage students to take that seriously, to say, I'm serious. I, I've met a lot of lawyers, a lot of alumni in cities and countries all around the world. It doesn't really matter what practice field you're in or what city you're in. What matters is how you've, st you've structured your professional life and make choices that make sense for you. You know, renovate a Victorian and Telluride and practice in that place. I mean, we're in a state with some of the most beautiful and iconic places on earth. And too often, maybe our students gravitate to Denver because that's where they think they should be or that's what they think they should be doing. I just encourage them to reflect carefully on how you want to practice, you know, how you want to wake up on that Friday morning or that Saturday morning. And sometimes it can lead us to choices we don't imagine ourselves making. And I think that's one of the beauties of law and one of the beauties of being in this incredible state. That is incredibly powerful advice and so true. Uh, I certainly know 
uh, a lot of you know lawyers that enjoy working at, at big law. Um, but I a hundred percent agree with you that some of the happiest lawyers I know took paths uh, that were non-traditional, went to areas that were non-traditional and have lives that are not what you necessarily think of if you see a lawyer on TV or, or, or where you imagine. And they may not have the you know massive bank accounts that some others do, but they are extremely, extremely happy. Uh, and that matters uh, most of all. Uh, well, thank you so much, Dean Smith, for coming on uh, the podcast. This has been uh, really enjoyable for me. I, I think it'll be really enjoyable for our listeners. I think that um, you, you've offered some really great perspectives today. So thank you so much for your time. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and a, a wonderful weekend. I appreciate it, Kevin. And, and thanks for what you do for the Young Lawyers Division and for the state of Colorado. Get legal with it.